Welcome back, listeners. This is episode six of the Life in Bomb City podcast. I'm Aaron Favor. And I'm Dr. Beth Rodriguez. We're sitting here with our guest, Representative Four Price, Texas District 87. Welcome to our show, sir. Thank you. I appreciate the invitation to join you. Yes, sir. Uh, Beth and I decided last year, I believe, to record a trilogy dealing with the opioid crisis. And this is the first episode of that trilogy. Uh, we'll be bringing you episodes on both law enforcement and treatment as well in the upcoming weeks and months. Just to give everyone a little bit of background about you, sir, um, so that those who may not know uh, about you or your political life can be a little bit more familiarized. Representative Price is a fourth-generation Texan. You're from the city of Amarillo uh, and represent District 87, which includes Carson, Hutchinson, Moore, Potter, and Sherman counties. Representative Price is incredibly well-respected as a legislator in the state of Texas and the political world of Austin. Uh, Representative Price has chaired several committees that are critical to the agenda of not just our district, but of the entire state of Texas. And one could argue the national agenda, particularly with his work on the House Select Committee on Opioid and Substance Abuse, which he was tapped for uh, by former Speaker of the House, Joe Strauss, and which is what we're here to talk to him about today. Uh, in 2019, Representative Price was appointed to the chair uh, to chair the House Calendars Committee by Speaker Dennis Bonin and serve on the House Natural Resources Committee and the House Public Health Committee. Additionally, in what I would call a symbol of how well-respected he is, he uh, was chosen to serve on the House Redistricting Committee one of the several posts that is apparently keeping him busy traveling around the state to listen to concerns of Texas citizens. He co-chairs the Health and Human Services Transition Legislative Oversight Committee and was recently appointed to serve on the House Select Committee on Mass Violence Prevention and Community Service. You are a very busy man. No kidding. <laughs> it is a busy time right now. And this interim period is actually a really good time for feedback from Texans about what policies they want to prioritize in the next session. So this is a an active time for all legislators, for sure. Well, I definitely want to reemphasize it's such a pleasure to have you on the show today. Thank you for taking time out of your busy uh, life to be here. Um, Beth and I have read the published interim report uh, to the 86 Texas legislature from your chairmanship of the House Select Committee on Opioids and Substance Abuse, your recommendations for legislative action from the last session that began uh, in January of this, uh, this year. Uh, can you talk about a few things you learned on that committee related to opioids and substance abuse that proved to be challenges? You know, in Texas, we have such a, a broad problem. Statistically, it, it may not always jump out at folks because we have such a large population, such a diverse population. Our record-keeping and methodologies are somewhat different than some other states, certainly some smaller states. And so, you know, it, it may not jump out to a lot of folks that the opioid and substance abuse addiction issues in Texas are as severe as they actually are. Um, how many people are affected, how many days of lost work and productivity and overdoses actually occur in Texas. So it was quite eye-opening to hear the testimony, learn the data, uh, kind of see how states differ from one to another and how hard it is to compare apples to apples in some of these areas. And, you know, it, it, it is amazing that, you know, some very little steps can be taken to make some progress in, in substantial ways. And so, you know, the, the committee was good because it heard a lot of large picture, big picture ideas that, that we could address, but we also heard some uh, very easy steps that could be taken, some non-legislative steps that could be taken as well, and some of those are actually, you know, underway as we speak. So looking at the numbers after we looked through the whole report, I noticed that a lot of the um, percentages in Texas were right along with the national averages on opioid and substance abuse, and even in some places higher. Is there a reason why that we think Texas is on the same percentage? 
of that? It was interesting to me too, um, you know, and, and in some cases, depending on which, I guess, data set you were looking at, um, some of our smaller, more rural communities um, really stood out. Uh, so Amarillo, for instance, Longview, Texarkana, Odessa, I think those were four of the cities that were pointed out by a national publication that, you know, suffered some some statistically high, higher than normal uh, overdose um, rates because of, you know, the number of prescriptions that were issued to communities of relative small size. Um, maybe, you know, there's not a significant law enforcement presence in those, in those uh, more rural communities uh, like the one we're living in. Mm-hmm. Um, perhaps there were some some other issues that, that contributed to that, but it, it was um, interesting. Texas, you know, is a giant state. Um, we have, you know, just a huge diverse community, and we're joining a lot of other states as well. So if somebody wants to go doctor shopping, um, you know, and you live in a community like Amarillo, Texas, it's not hard to drive to New Mexico or to Kansas or to Oklahoma and come back. And we're taking some ste- steps that hopefully will uh, alleviate some or mitigate some of those problems. But yes, I mean, I think that, that it was a little surprising. And Texas, as I stated, was, you know, uh, not an exception to the opioid crisis uh, nationally. Uh, in the formation of public policy uh, regarding drugs, it seems that on the level of the national government, at least, um, they've taken one of two or both routes, um, attacking supply and or attacking demand. Uh, in the committee, did you find this to be a reality? Uh, this report is so detailed in its recommendations uh, for legislative action. I'm curious as to how you were able to break down the complexity. Can you visit with us about that? <laughs> that actually was really a difficult thing to do is to break it down into um, you know, measurable and digestible segments that you could make some legislative headway on in a 140-day legislative session. Uh, Because not everybody obviously served on the select committee, so they didn't have the background in education. Maybe the entire committee did. And remember, this was just a House committee, Mm -hmm. so it didn't involve the Senate at all. So you have to, you know, uh, educate your colleagues in both chambers and certainly, you know, do the best you can to make, um, you know, the most progress possible in a very short period of time. So one of the things I think that, that, you know, we tried to address was, yes, both, um, you know, the the supply, um, but also uh, a broader educational prioritization, both on the, you know, I guess, side of physicians or prescribers, um, as well as patients. And, and, you know, we took some steps to actually do that because I think there's a growing awareness and there needs to be of the addictive qualities of opioids, especially for acute pain. Um, what we did not want to do was um, just prohibit the use, uh, legitimate use of opioids for pain management in chronic cases. And we had a lot of folks testify at the Capitol that were very nervous, very concerned that they were suffering from chronic conditions. They didn't want to see this taken off the table for them as an option. And that was never the intention. But uh, if you could, you know, separate chronic from acute and you could separate uh, some issues like uh, proper education for those that are prescribing, whether they be dentists, whether they be PAs, whether they be, you know, physicians, we need to strengthen the prescription monitoring program. We had to, you know, really focus on education and awareness. We had to focus on the use of antagonists or, you know, the, the drugs that are used to combat an, an overdose situation. Um, that's something we could do. And then the, the supply is something that, you know, I think uh, we had to focus on and medication take back programs and things like that to help everybody understand that, you know, um, the, the supply out there is, is, is 
troubling or problematic because people will self-medicate or sell it on the black market, and it just exacerbates the problem. So, yeah, we tried to uh, take a lot of those and and break them out into segments that we could actually make progress on, and I think we did. Well, it's funny because I was looking at all of this, and when we were looking at the DSM, which is a Diagnostic Statistical Manual for um, Psychological Disorders, substance abuse was – like first in the 50s, was actually um, labeled under the sociopathic personality disorder. And so people weren't being treated for the substance abuse. They were being treated for a personality disorder. And it wasn't until 80s that they actually decided the substance use disorder was now a diagnosis. And so um, there was one act that I had found. It was passed um, in 2018 in June, and it was the Overdose Prevention and Patient Safety Act. Have you, did you hear about that at all? We did hear some okay. reference to that. Yes. Yeah, and it was, um, and I figured, because a lot of the stuff that you guys talked about really did play into, they called it the OPPS Act, because it's a lot easier than saying everything else. But um, they did. They were really worried about not just the fact that there's a stigma for people who have a mental disorder and the substance abuse disorder, but also the idea that we need to know how to help if you are overdosing, because people don't. And um, that's kind of one of the steps is that we wouldn't see death as much if we were had more education about what was going on. No, that's correct. And, and, you know, that, that was a reason why we actually focused a lot on the educational component of this, because, from both sides of the fence, whether you're prescribing or receiving, uh, everybody need a little higher knowledge and, and awareness of of the consequences um, and, and maybe what some symptoms look like and what you can do in cases of an accidental overdose, for instance. And so that's that's uh, important. And, and there were several pieces of legislation that address that from, you know, from the continuing education requirements that uh, prescribers have to uh, take. Um, to what we now see is a 10-day limitation on uh, the uh, prescription of opioids in Texas for acute pain. Um, that's, that's, you know, somewhat controversial, I guess, but it is a step that uh, the legislature felt necessary. A lot of insurance, especially private insurance companies, were already kind of taking some measures on their own to just limit the supply, again, that we talked about, as well as um, forcing that discussion between a prescriber and a patient that, you know, you probably don't need 30 days worth of a medication to treat, you know, a week or 10-day condition. And, you know, it was interesting. Dr. Sheffield, who's a colleague of mine in the House, served on the committee. And uh, he he sort of educated the committee and and spent a lot of time talking about the development of the fifth vital sign years ago and how, you know, there was a time probably 25 years ago when physicians were highly criticized for not managing or treating pain um, very well. And then that sort of coincided with the development of the fifth vital sign where patients would be asked, you know, on a scale of one to 10, what is your pain? And pretty soon, um, you know, I think, uh, you know, when pain was identified at a six, seven, eight, whatever the measure may be, um, and, and opioids were actually being marketed and developed and pushed at, at a much more aggressive level. Mm-hmm. This all happened at the same time. And so I, I, you know, can't help but think that the development of the fifth vital sign, the criticism of physicians, the pushing or, you know, marketing or just desire to use more pain management medications mm-hmm. all were occurring at the same time. And so there was a huge oversupply or, you know, maybe maybe overprescribing phenomenon occurring 
and at a time when I think patients weren't quite as knowledgeable about the side effects or, Mm -hmm. you know, the addictive quality. So I think we have come a long way from where we were. We have a long way to go, but hopefully, um, you know, the awareness and educational aspect of all this is going to be, um, you know, bearing fruit here for us in the future. Uh, so what are some other past examples, aside from the one that Beth has just mentioned, um, uh, that her example was at the national level, mm-hmm. um, perhaps adopted by either our state in prior legislatures or other states who are also tackling these problems, but maybe in a different way, using different methodologies. Uh, uh, did this committee or its members ever travel out of state to visit and meet with parties that have seen growth and success that our state can model off of? And what is something that Texas may be doing that other states might want to adopt in the future? So the committee itself uh, held all of its hearings in Austin. Um, each individual House member who served on the committee undertook their own, you know, efforts to talk to folks out of state or some, in some cases travel out of state. We had members from all regions of the state, some that lived down in Far East Texas that border Louisiana. Um, obviously, we had members that, that did their own traveling and, and had meetings both you know, nationally in different locations, participated in conferences and things like that. But we held all our hearings in Austin. And so we didn't have the budget to actually get out and do a uh, much more uh, aggressive schedule. And it was a select committee. So it really met for a very limited period of time. So we felt like we needed to kind of do that in Austin uh, just to accomplish what we were charged to do. Um, you know, I think some of the things that, that Texas was was working on that we have passed that other states are either in the process of working on or maybe have done in different variations is uh, like a, one level, the prescription monitoring program. Now, that is something that I mentioned just a second ago. It's often referred to as the PDMP or the PMP. And what that is, is a, a, a database that is checked um, before a physician or a prescriber is going to prescribe an opioid. And if the patient is already in the database, is having received a prescription, say recently, or from another provider, that will show up in the database. So it might be okay, but it also might be a red flag that, that you know, we need to have a further discussion about why you're coming in for another prescription when you just received one, um, you know, recently or Maybe your veterinarian prescribed one, or maybe your dental, uh, your dentist had prescribed one, or whatever the case is. So it may be totally legitimate, but it may not be. And it also requires the pharmacist before dispensing the opioid to double check again uh, in, in an effort to make sure that there is no, you know, overprescribing problem or abuse of the system problem that is occurring. And there are algorithms built into that database so that if multiple prescriptions over a shorter period of time or showing up with the same person, um, you know, it will alert um, the prescriber so that you hopefully cut down on that. And so there's some efforts there to actually not just, uh, you know, strengthen that in Texas, which it won't be fully effective until um, the early part of 2020. Uh, It's already being established and you can check it, but it's not required at all those levels I just mentioned until I think March of 2020. But um, other states, it would be it would be great if we could actually communicate very well across state lines and make those databases talk to each other because those are being developed as well and utilized in some states, some some bordering states as well. So that you know would really be a useful thing in those instances where somebody may be trying to quickly obtain prescriptions in multiple locations in multiple states. 
just to have that supply, whether they're going to use it for themselves or sell it, you know, or, or right. whatever the case may be. So um, that's something that I think uh, we made tremendous headway on, but uh, and other states are working on it. However, everybody's kind of in a different stage of development and progress and implementation. So uh, hopefully we'll see that coordinated effort, um, you know, occur a little more significantly here in the near future. Interesting. Uh, Is there anything that you guys really worked on, some initiative or something that you were really like, yeah, and it didn't make? (laughs) Of course, there always is. Um, You know, that the the legislative session is so short in duration that there's always issues that you feel like, uh, you know, should be just completely agreeable to everybody. And generally, that's never the case because there's always (laughs) some group or some person or some, you know, group of people that don't uh, always agree. And that's just kind of the legislative process. Uh, for instance, I had a bill that, that not only had some limitations in it with regard to the prescription of controlled, uh, controlled substances, including opioids, but, but it also had uh, sort of some requirements on the prescriber, for instance, a physician to um, have a conversation with their patients about the addictive qualities and to document that in their record and then uh, to follow up on that. And so um, even though I think that educational communication between doctor and patient is a really good idea, and probably most doctors do that, um, the physician community really didn't like being told by the legislature that you're going to have to do this, mm-hmm. and you're going to have to document, and you're going to have to show that, you know, this t- took place. And so, and I get that, um, you know, it's it's kind of a, uh, it's it's a commonsensical thing to do, in my opinion. It's a good best practice thing to do, in my opinion, Um but the fact is they just didn't necessarily like the idea of a physician being told what to do by the state legislature, and I also understand that too, because in their independent medical judgment, they need to be able to, to operate the way they feel best. And so, uh, you know, that's a pretty basic example. But, yeah, I mean, there's some things that, that certainly, you know, we would like to have seen accomplished that we just didn't quite get to the finish line. But this is a huge issue that is not, you know, going away anytime soon. It's a multi-session issue in many cases. We'll go back and see, uh, you know, the progress that we made. Is it working? Does it need to be adjusted? I mean, there's always new issues. There was one that just came to mind, um, which I would have never thought about prior to last session. But, um, you know, we encourage individuals, especially those who have family members who are maybe on prescription opioids for pain management, to have an antagonist available, uh, you know, like a Narcan or naloxone so that if, uh, if, if their, you know, family member overdoses that they have some drug available to help them until an EMT can arrive. And, um, we realize that in some cases because they had obtained that via a prescription, um, that it might be affecting their ability to obtain life insurance because life insurance companies were looking at that saying, well, if you're getting this antagonist, that must mean you're on opioids or addicted. And if you're addicted, you're going to be an insurance risk. And so we're not going to offer or underwrite your insurance. That bill, did that bill, we were talking about that bill. Today, <laughs> yeah. Weren't we? I think so. This morning. Yeah. Yeah. About the insurance and everything that plays into it. Yes. It was a very interesting issue and it, it did pass. And so, um, you know, we, we were able to, you know, basically not penalize in Texas those individuals who we've encouraged to have some, you know, very useful medication on hand in case there is an overdose situation. It might not be their own. It might be a family member, somebody they live with, or whatever the case is. And so issues like that are issues that come up every session that, you know, just consequences from things that you do that you don't necessarily anticipate having to deal with. And it happens on a whole host of issues, but I think that's a pretty good example of something that... 
think yeah, we were visiting about we that were. in the in the uh, implementation of public policy. Oftentimes, one of the things that you guys try to project or think about when you're strategizing and when you're um, doing lots of critical thinking and problem solving, what are the going to be the unintended consequences of the policies we're putting out? Because they're going to be there. Mm-hmm. We don't know what they are. We can't know what we can't know. And uh, that's one of that's them. That's correct. <laughs> no, it's it's absolutely true. You know, there there were also um, a lot of efforts this past session to focus on uh, maternal mortality and morbidity. And, you know, Texas uh, has, has suffered, you know, in some areas in this, in, in, you know, protecting mothers. And, and you know, statistically, there have been some areas where it's not, not, you know, it's not good for us. And so we needed to really focus on, you know, why that's the case and, and what can we do. And so, you know, in an area of, of substance abuse and addiction, um, recognizing that, that that might play a role in some of the poor statistics that were, you know, reflecting uh, maternal mortality and morbidity in Texas, we had established a task force so that they would collaborate and required that collaboration between the, the task force and, and the Department of State Health Services so that we can really come up with some solid priorities and policy initiatives that will prevent that, you know, and, and uh, maybe that will help play a role in improving our maternal mortality and morbidity statistics in Texas. So there's lots of issues out there um, that relate, you know, to mm-hmm. this. And, and Beth, you brought up uh, sort of a co-occurring condition between mental health and, and substance abuse. And, you know, it's quite common. And, you know, sometimes it starts out as a substance abuse issue that turns into more of a mental health issue. And sometimes somebody with suffering a mental illness can become addicted to substances. And so a lot of these issues have to be treated holistically and together and not recognized as just one or the other because they happen uh, together in many cases. I love that you brought that up because I actually looked it up and what they're saying, like worldwide, not just United States, but every worldwide, there's um, 50% of mental disorders um, are affected by substance abuse. And 30% um, of alcohol abuse and 57, 53% of drug abuse have at least one mental disorder. I'm not surprised. I know. Yeah. So everything's co-occurring, which, I mean, could play into the idea that we don't just need to look just at the drug, but we need to look at something else. We need to, you know, kind of help out on all fronts so we don't see the issues just continuing. Yeah, We're totally not, we can't agree. put the Band-Aid on. And be like, oh, everything's fine <laughs> because it's still bleeding. That's right. Correct. And so and that's kind of this idea that we talk about all the time is like, where, where is it? Like if we're looking at the legislative part, is that going to fix everything? And it's not. And but it's a good step. That's but right. we have to continue to do the treatment part, the education part and everything else that goes along with it. Yeah, there's a lot of pieces to that puzzle. And I think you're right. There is no easy, you know, answer or else it would have been done a long time right. ago for sure. But recognizing, I think, is a good step forward that, you know, many of these conditions are, are happening jointly or co-occurring, and, you know, you can't break them off into silos and just look at them in a vacuum. Uh, and, and I think we're doing a better job overall, one, you know, destigmatizing uh, mental illness. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, there's still a lot of work to be done there, but I think we're light years ahead of where we were even just a few years ago uh, on that. Mm-hmm. And when it comes to, you know, whether it's an opioid addiction or another substance use disorder, uh, you know, whether it's self-medicating with other drugs, it's it's really something that, you know, if we view together, um, you know, it, it, it's all part of the, I think, the trend to integrate 
mm-hmm. treatments, you know, physical health, mental health uh, together, it's going to be more um, successful when we right. do that. And mm-hmm. so I, I think uh, we'll see a lot more of those efforts and uh, both at the medical school education level and in the actual practical treatment of some of these conditions. Yes. I'd like to touch on something that's a, a same, same issue. We're talking about a really wide playing field here. Uh, but within criminal justice, another co-occurring thing happening uh, regarding uh, drug use and the committing of crimes. Uh, Judge Reyes in the report uh, from the former president of the Texas Association of Specialty Courts, uh, the role of specialty courts in uh, in being able to deal with some of these uh, co-occurrences of, of people being on uh, drugs while they're committing crimes. Um, I'm going to throw some statistics out there from the effectiveness of specialty courts in Texas and then ask you to comment on them. So 75% of specialty court graduates remain arrest-free, a 40% reduction in crime compared to other sentencing options, 78% of graduates obtained retained employment, 21% obtained a high school diploma or GED, uh, 12% enrolled in college, and 14% enrolled in vocational training. So it also seems that specialty courts save the state money um, and communities money um, says every dollar spent on specialty courts equals $3.36 in avoided criminal justice costs alone. Uh, could you comment on some of those things? <laughs> sure. I, I think, you know, the use of specialty courts has been very successful in Texas. We have a number of different specialty courts. Um, they've really developed over a course of a number of years recently. Um, you know, we have drug courts. We have veterans courts. We have, you know, lots of different types of specialty courts that really are very unique. Um, not every community has them. Um, you know, often they are funded through different revenue streams, uh, quite commonly through the governor's office. But um, but it also requires sometimes buy-in at a local level, county level, for instance, to, to fund. And you have to have judges who are willing to participate. And so um, the statistics you just quoted are indicative of the success a lot of specialty courts have had, especially in this area that we're talking about. Um, You know, so often we see repeat offenders go in or enter our criminal justice system and cycle back out and then back in again and back out and back in again because what they really have needed was some guidance, some resource, some treatment, not necessarily incarceration. You know, a lot of these are nonviolent offenders who are picked up for a class B misdemeanor, but it results from an addiction to a substance that has caused some very odd behavior. And, you know, that's that's not necessarily going to get better by just spending a short amount of time in county jail and coming back out onto the street and then going back to county jail. So recognizing that, um, we, have, we have strengthened the use of specialty courts in Texas, although there's still quite a bit of um, differences regionally as well as um, from a funding uh, standpoint. Um, so there's work to be done there if we're going to make that more available to the, all 254 counties. Um, but we have also created some grant programs in Texas specifically for jail diversion, which can be used in connection with specialty courts um, and other other programs that really work hand-in-hand with the type of objective that many of our specialty courts are trying to achieve, which is successful graduation treatment. Let's move people who don't need to be part of the criminal justice system out. Uh, It's better for those folks individually, and it's a a big advantage to local taxpayers, quite frankly, because they are 
footing the bill for, you know, a lot of the uh, folks who are languishing in our county jails awaiting competency restoration or treatment and, and things like that. So uh, I'm, I, I appreciate Judge Reyes coming to testify because he's quite an authority on uh, specialty courts, and we had a number of folks give us testimony about the success uh, that they are seeing in their specialty courts regionally. Um, and I, I really feel like there's, uh, you know, once you see some of these graduates successfully complete their programs and where they are in life and where they started and hear their testimonials and see kind of the history there, it's, it's uh, you know, it's not 100%, but it is certainly pretty dramatic statistically. And, and I think a lot of the judges that participate would sing the praises of the programs. Well, it just brings up the idea that when everybody responds to punishment the same way. <laughs> I mean, some people respond to timeout. Sure. And some people don't. And they need some help and they don't realize what they've done necessarily because that's the way they've always done it. So it makes sense, especially courts really do, that we're teaching and educating and moving you to a new place so you can choose different because of you're not in that same situation anymore. A minute ago, you mentioned uh, the grant program that... Uh, it was for jail diversion. Uh, I'd like to speak a little bit about some of the grant uh, money, not only because it's, it's a com- very complicated system. Money's coming from everywhere, from the Center for Disease Control and the federal government, the Department of Health and Human Services, and uh, everywhere. Right. Uh, and so some of these programs, um, the Texas Targeted Opioid Response, I don't know, if it's TTOR. Do y'all have, like, do y'all call that TTOR? TTOR is how it's referred to. Okay, it sounds like Thor, and it sounds, so it so- I like the way that sounds. It sounds powerful. Um, under Texas Health and Human Services produced a report um, in August of this year that details some things about federal grants to the state of Texas that we'd like to visit about for just a few minutes. According to that report, Texas has received uh, over $176 million in grants across four categories, state targeted response, state opioid response, strategic prevention framework for prescription drugs, and a first responders grant. Uh, the lifetimes of those grants vary with the prescription drugs grant beginning in 2016, and some of these have lifetimes extending into 2021. Uh, how is your work related to these grants, if at all, and possibly the extension of the grants? Also, do these grants ever impede the progress of your bills? You know, it's interesting. The timing was very um, was very interesting for our committee's work because a lot of the TTOR or federal grants uh, sort of coincided with the work our committee was doing, and and the president came out and declared opioid crisis as a public health crisis, which had significance for funding for programs and initiatives across the country, including Texas. So I would say that it affected it from the standpoint, in a good way, because it affected it from the standpoint that we weren't on our own. We weren't trying to figure out how to solve a problem on our own and necessarily dedicating more resources. You know, when we're talking about $176 million in federal grant dollars just to Texas, you know, that is significant money. That is significant, um, you know, in terms of what is being appropriated towards a problem that we all now recognize we're facing in, in the state. If we didn't have that, yes, we would be undertaking some of the same probably I'd say that, you know, I mean, it very, very likely that we'd be undertaking some similar um, steps, but we might not have the same level of funding that we could dedicate to those problems. Um, or if we did, you know, that immediately takes away from something else. So you, again, you have to have the buy-in from a consensus of, of lawmakers from all over the state, which it, it would be difficult to do. You know, if you had to ask somebody, do you want to spend more money on public education or taking care of our seniors and, and, you know, 
lowering taxes or do you want to put money into drug treatment programs? I can tell you that most of the time that that won't, you know, that won't be, uh, you know, it won't end successfully for drug treatment programs. It'll probably be, uh, you know, lower on the priority list. And so to have the federal government, you know, offer some of these programs helps. Um, it helps a lot. And, you know, to have things like a, uh, a grant program that's going to be putting money to educate and equip our first responders, you know, that's just one of the areas you mentioned, but that's a great one because, honestly, until some of the testimony before our committee uh, occurred, I didn't recognize the, um, the, the high level of risk that some of our first responders are experiencing with fentanyl on the streets and how deadly that is and how, you know, they must take serious precautions now like they have never had to take before in order to avoid, um, you know, contact even with, with fentanyl. And it's so much more common today than it used to be. So, you know, these are things that we just didn't have to deal with before. So it takes a while to educate your colleagues. It takes a while to get money in place to combat it. Meanwhile, first responders are having to deal with it, you know, every day. So to have, to have a, uh, you know, a partner, so to speak, and a federal counterpart say, this is a crisis. We are going to allocate the dollars and we're doing it right now. Um, you know, they, they meet all the time. We meet every other year for 140 days. And so it does help. It, I don't know that I'd say it impeded what we did, but it, what it did was because, you know, it, it, it helped, you know, us be able to focus on some areas maybe that aren't addressed by some of these federal dollars. So it did help us you know, um, in the legislative session, guide our efforts to be a little more precise about what we want to do, knowing that that was out there. I see. Um, uh, HB 1293 was a, a specific bill uh, which targeted education in public schools uh, regarding right. opioid addiction. Um, that may, bill may be totally unrelated, but it seems like appropriation of funds might be related in some indirect way. We, we had uh, uh, that bill and uh, HB uh, 18, um, HB 19, we had several bills that actually addressed not only um, maybe the uh, the introduction of uh, an educational part of our curriculum with regard to substance use disorders, um, opioid addiction, but just behavioral health issues, um, you know, generally. Um, for instance, in high school, through HB 18, it, you don't have to teach health, but if you do teach health and you choose to do that in Texas, um, you know, the bill says you ought to at least consider that, you know, health is more than just diabetes prevention and nutrition and cardiovascular disease. It also includes suicide prevention mm -hmm. and anxiety and depression and substance use disorders and those types of issues. So, you know, I think that was good. I think we have much more emphasis on not, not just educating students um, at all ages and at a younger age, but educating our educators and our administrators about uh, what they can learn uh, to identify red flags and, and um, you know, maybe children in crisis so that they can connect them with proper resources and treatment. We've actually now embedded um, non-physician mental health providers in each of our regional service centers across Texas. So like educational service centers here at Region 16, but there are regions all across Texas now that will at least have somebody as a backstop or a connector. You know, if, if you're on a campus and you recognize maybe this student is exhibiting signs of, you know, substance use disorders or depression or something else, you want to get them help. Mm -hmm. You don't want to let that, you know, progress to a point where something, you know, tragic happens or this, the seriousness of that problem gets worse. You want to be able to connect them with somebody that can help them. And not every campus has the, you know, trained health professional or counselor even on staff. And so 
um, that was a step that we took in the last session. It really connects to this whole idea that all of these issues, you know, seem to be related at some level. And um, we just want to provide, you know, the resources in Texas that we can to, um, to address it as best we can. Okay, so uh, I was looking at an informational map on the Texas Health and Human Services website uh, that's part of a syndromic surveillance program being funded by the CDC uh, to help us track what we're dealing with here in terms of overdoses and deaths. Um, their public data only extends through 2016, but they did include county by county throughout the state of Texas in that informational uh, uh, graphic. Um, so Bexar County, I think Harris may have been the most impacted, Tarrant, Dallas, um, Seems like uh, HB 2707 uh, might be able to help not just in rural communities. Um, funding, uh, I believe that was funding uh, some of these local health centers that have to do with um, uh, substance abuse disorders, mental health, uh, places I think they've got some in, like one in Vernon, uh, places places that places like that in sure. Texas. Yeah, there, there's, of course, we, we, we deal with these issues in, in a variety of ways. You know, we have step-down treatment centers. We've got state hospitals. Um, we have, you know, all types of inpatient, outpatient resources. Uh, it just differs significantly from one region of Texas to another. Um, the use of, of telehealth and telemedicine is actually something that, through legislation passed this session and last session, have, have made, I think, you know, a big difference in the delivery of health care. Um, to to folks both urban and rural alike, you know, and so uh, I think that that what we have seen is is both a, a recognition generally that we have to do more, and so we have appropriated additional dollars to a whole host of programs, grant programs, programmatic changes, agencies and services. I mean, you know, it's just it's been uh, aggressively pursued over the last couple of sessions and. Uh, but what you've also seen are just collaborative ideas. You know, a lot of good things that can happen, as I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, we didn't really have to pass bills to see happen. Mm -hmm. um, you know, some very good ideas are happening through, uh, again, medication take-back programs and, and things that, you know, don't require us to get involved necessarily or to pass a bill, but, um, you know, can happen at a local level. Um, to really affect both the education of the community, the, the supply of, of opioids, um, you know, alternatives to medication, you know, some things that if you don't need to take the medication for longer than two days or four days or ten days, don't do it. And I just, you know, have to believe that all of these things working in concert with one another will make a measurable difference and prevent some opioid deaths and overdoses in the future. So something that we were talking about, we're like, you know, there's always seems like there's just an easy way to fix it. Why don't we just get rid of it? Get rid of opioids, <laughs> right? It's causing, so there, we know all the bad stuff. We know what it's binding to. We know that it's causing um, very addiction very quickly. So why don't we just get rid of it? We cannot prescribe it anymore. Boy, that, that was uh, a scary, that would be a scary thing. And again, you know, I think that that was the fear of a lot of Texans uh, when this committee was formed. I can't tell you the number of emails and phone calls and letters that our office received saying, um, you know, I suffer from a chronic condition that is only managed through my, you know, ingestion of certain pain medications, including opioids. And, you know, I, I think that there is a justifiable medical and appropriate use for opioids, no question. 
Um, and so that was never the intention is to just say we're going to cut, you know, all use of opioids and, and, you know, take it off the shelves and prohibit the prescription of them. But, you know, I mean, you know, there are people out there that think, well, you know, we should just do that. And that was really never um, something that we even evaluated. In fact, it was quite the opposite. What we wanted to do is make sure that we were managing the problem where the problem existed. And it was never under the care of a physician for management of chronic pain. It was always almost entirely, you know, self-medicated, black market, um, you know, non-knowledge of how long somebody should take an opioid for acute pain before they become addicted. And in some cases, and you mentioned it, it can happen really quickly. I never realized that some people can become addicted to their opioid medication within a couple of doses. I mean, just a day or two, and all of a sudden, that's the case. Now, not everybody responds that way, but it can happen. And, you know, addictions are quite serious, and so, you know, and that leads to other addictions. It can. Mm -hmm. Um, Certainly, we have read and seen and heard from individuals who, um, you know, went from pain medication and not being able to get it anymore to finding, you know, other ways to treat their addiction, um, heroin, for instance. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, statistically, that's making um, quite a comeback, you know, and so that's, that's a bad thing. And so we obviously are keeping an eye on how to reduce that as well. Really interesting. So the scheduling of, of some of these drugs, um, where does the benzodiazepine uh, topic play into this? We heard um, testimony about, I guess, uh, midway through the committee's work about uh, what was, I guess, referred to as the Houston cocktail. Um, It was the combination, and I don't remember why it was called that at the time. (laughs) Maybe that was the person testifying was from Houston, but uh, because that's not a name I think anybody would want to have associated (laughs) with the actual underlying substance, but it was the combination of, of three drugs, and I'm going to forget exactly. It was a benzodiazepine along with an opioid, and, and I can't remember the third component, but it was um, it was extremely dangerous because, you know, it slowed down your, your uh, respiratory system. Um, you know, people who, who were, were engaged in this very dangerous, you know, concoction or taking it um, often died because, you know, it was, it was such a, you know, dangerous combination of drugs and so any one of them any one of them by themselves can be obviously classified as a dangerous substance but you start to combine these different drugs um, and, and I think the knowledge of what each one does to your your body your nervous system your respiratory system um, you know is just generally unknown and so you know I don't think again uh, this was often done on purpose but what would happen is either people would do that you know because they were addicted or wanted to, you know, try that. Uh, or maybe they, they received one drug from one physician without it being known to another physician. They got it, didn't know the qualities um, or how they would interact with one another um, and then ingest those drugs together, and then it created this dangerous condition. So, you know, again, I think we're much further down the road to being knowledgeable about, you know, the, the side effects of dangerous conditions, the addictive qualities, all that today than we were even a few years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but you know, there's, there's, this is not a time to let our foot off the gas. We have to absolutely continue to put pressure, you know, on our prescribers and our patient community and, and pharmacists and, you know, the, the folks that are going to be in contact with people who are going to be taking this for acute pain on a regular basis so that they don't find themselves again, in a situation where they're going to be become addicted. 
Well, I have kidney stones. And one time we were in Santa Fe, and I actually, they put me on morphine right. immediately. And my parents were like, nope, we're going to go back to Amarillo because we don't want to have it here because I had to get it removed. And they took me, I was on morphine for probably, I don't know, three hours, like the drip. Mm-hmm. That was, and because it felt really good because my kidney stone hurt. And I was actually experiencing withdrawal symptoms after that. Yeah. And I mean, I could see the reason people get addicted is because they don't have to deal with the way they feel afterwards. Sure. And so they just do it again and they do it again. And that's why I think it, one of these things like morphine, opioids, all of it becomes, they bind to those receptors so quickly that they cause a really painful withdrawal and people don't want to deal with it. And that's why we see it so quickly. Absolutely. Um, you know, and, and we did focus somewhat on treatment in, in our committee's work. It was a lot easier, I'll be honest, to, to say, what can you do on the front end of the problem, you know, to, to educate the public or to reduce the supply um, or to limit, you know, improper access and, and, and educate our prescribers. All those things were kind of definable in a way that was much easier from a legislative perspective than uh, dealing with the hundreds of thousands of Texans who are already addicted uh, what can you really do? Um, mm-hmm. You know, and so we did um, make, you know, I guess the uh, what I would consider to be a gold standard in treatment and medication assisted treatment um, protocol, um, easier, e- more easily obtained without a prior authorization. Uh, we did, you know, try to um, address that because I think, you know, again, if you have you know, withdrawal symptoms, if you're addicted, you're trying to, to come off of that. Um, it's important to have probably, for most people, not everybody's going to react the same way, but I think uh, at least our understanding as a committee was most people are going to favorably respond to both some medication, but also some, some good counseling, some good guidance. It's not just one, it's not just the other. It's a combination of both. Mm-hmm. And in many cases, I think that's very successful and when it's implemented correctly. So, you know, we tried to make some headway there, too. It's just a much more difficult area because everybody's so unique in how they respond and what will be paid for and mm-hmm. how much it will cost and who's providing the service. That um, I think that's an area that will continue to get some focus. I just want to clarify, I was not addicted. <laughs> <laughs> that's I good to clarify, <laughs> sure. <laughs> Because <laughs> I might hear it from some of my students, like, <laughs> what? <laughs> oh, Dar- uh, Representative Price, uh, thank you so much for being on our program today. And it's a, that's a heartfelt thank you. Uh, this is a very dynamic, complicated issue. It's an issue of our time. It's up to us to resolve it. If, if people made it, I believe it was John F. Kennedy said, uh, if people created the problem, people can figure out the problem. And so... Uh, together, um, working not only at the college, um, but uh, you as a policymaker at the state level, um, working in conjunction with your colleagues, um, working with uh, individuals in the health industry, um, with uh, individuals across every single field and every single profession, if we can all pull together. Uh, we really appreciate your time. It's uh, obvious how, uh, how vast this problem is by the just the varied topics that we brought up in the last 45 minutes. So thank you again for coming onto our program. Oh, it's been a pleasure. It's a quick 45 minutes. It I is. can't believe it's come and gone, but I really enjoyed uh, being on your show. Thanks for the invitation. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for your time. We'll see you next time. <laughs>